just a couple of things before I do pray and get into this session. Uh, Joel said something that's, that's extremely important, and I, I hope you caught it, that it's, it's in worshiping God that we do battle. Uh, one of the things we can never lose sight of in this ministry, that it's in the very process of worshiping God when He communicates His person and power uh, to get the victory over the adversary. And that's why your personal relationship with Christ is the most important ingredient in ministry. And we must always maintain Jesus as our first love. Appreciate Joel's kindness in saying he could sit and listen to me for eight hours. I wish my children were that kind. I've put them to sleep over the years and... Uh, and I th actually, I think you're getting a little too much of me this weekend, but I think most of you are aware of the fact that there's a specific design in taping this series uh, for broader distribution. Uh, I'm part of a group called LAPCO, Leadership Alliance of Pregnancy Center Organizations. It's a group, uh, it brings all the key national organizations that minister to pregnancy centers, like CareNet, Heartbeat, uh, Loving and Caring, uh, NIFLA, Focus on the Family, ICU Mobile. Uh, there's about, I think there's only about 12, 15 of us. And we meet annually. We, uh, it's just the key leaders of each ministry, and they can bring one other person. So it's, it's not a large group. Uh, uh, you'll be glad to know that we spend the first day in doing nothing but praying for you and uh, the ministries and the movement. Uh, the second day is a little more business where we discuss issues that we think are important that need to be addressed. And the way this series came about, uh, the last few years, uh, one of the things that's come out loud and clear in those meetings is the concern that I mentioned earlier about the increased hostility, but not the concern so much about the hostility, but are we going to respond properly to it? And... Uh, a lot of the organizations were seeing a lot of fear and anxiety uh, among their affiliates in light of many of the things we're encountering, uh, the hostility and the attacks. And so just believe that there was a need for, first for some just good biblical instruction, foundation to prepare us for persecution and adversity, and that's the purpose uh, of this. If I could just give a brief personal testimony, and I, and I hope you'll take this the right way, and I say it, I do say it in all humility, and I do say it as a testimony to God, uh, you know, in light of what Joel said. I was converted September 20th, 1970, out of a deep, deep life of sin, uh, almost simultaneous with my conversion, uh, began working as a, probably shouldn't have done it this early, but uh, with a, as youth director, volunteer at a church, I was I went through a Bible college four years, so I, I served with that church for four years, became extremely close to the pastor. Uh, this man, uh, Eli Wiltshire, uh, he loved me as much as any person has ever loved me. And, uh, but once I graduated, married Kathy, and we were going into a church planning ministry in Delaware, uh, he told me this, and, and out of Nothing but love, admiration, and respect for me. You need to understand. He said, he said Andy, uh, I love you. And it's going to be sad seeing you go. And he said, um, uh, Andy, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that has the passionate love for Jesus that you do. But, you know, it, it's very obvious as you go forward. And he's just giving this as advice, counsel, because of he loves me. It's very obvious with your temperament and your giftings, and God is not going to use you as a, as a teacher or a, a preacher in any way. And, uh, and hey, there was no offense in that, uh, especially if you would have known me at, at, at that time. And, uh, and even when I came here to Edgewood, I came initially, I came here in 1977, I came here as a minister of education. And you know what began me sharing? It was this ministry. Uh, you know, we opened our pregnancy center, and uh, as people began to contact us, uh, since we were one of the early pioneers, church gave me the freedom to travel. So it put me in a position where I had to begin to 
open my mouth and share with people. And, uh, and, and the point I'm making is uh, it's just God's strength perfected in my weakness. The second thing I'll say with my teaching in all sincerity, and I can honestly say this before God, and I say this to encourage you, um, that everything I share... may have been prepared in my study, but it was learned in the crucible of adversity. I will not share anything with you this weekend that God has not taught me. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that I've arrived in any of these truths or principles. I'm still a work in progress, but if I'm sharing it, it's because God has driven it into my heart uh, through life's difficulties And so I share that uh, to encourage uh, you uh, as well. Uh, So pray with me and we'll get into this uh, second lesson. Father, teach us now. Uh, Use David's life uh, to encourage us how you do truly use the fires of adversity uh, to perfect your child. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Uh, Amen. Our second lesson, as you see, is on David, uh, how God uses persecution to perfect his child. Uh, As you see, the references will focus on portions of 1 Samuel, along with uh, four Psalms that we definitely know David wrote during his years of persecution at the hands of King Saul, because he notes that uh, in the inscription to the Psalms. Look there in your notes, this at David's persecution. Again, I I don't need to say a lot about David's life. You're you're very familiar with it, but we just need to sort of set the tone and move from there. Uh, But you know, shortly after being anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king, uh, David achieves national hero status uh, by slaying Goliath, uh, the Philistine giant. Uh, We see in scriptures he quickly promoted to a military commander. Uh, over the forces of Israel, accompanied with great uh, material prosperity and uh, marital bliss. You remember he became married to uh, Saul's daughter, daughter Micah. Uh, he is revered by all. He's even extolled in song for the, his great feats on the battlefield. Uh, King Saul then, as you know, becomes what? Jealous uh, of David, sees him as a threat, uh, and uh, attempts to kill him. Uh, three times. Uh, Saul then labels David a criminal. And here's the most important thing to see, just setting the tone for this lesson. Overnight, David goes from being a national hero to public enemy number one. Just incredible when you just stop and reflect on that a moment. Uh, He literally becomes a fugitive on the run in the harsh Judean wilderness. And most people are not aware how long this lasts, for over 10 years. For over 10 years, uh, he was subjugated to that Judean wilderness trying to uh, keep away from Saul who was trying to track him down and kill him. But that last sentence, it was during those long 10 years of persecution that David, or that God shapes David's character to fulfill his God-given destiny, to rule as king over the nation of Israel. So, think with me now. God takes the future king, which was his choice, and he throws him into a barren wilderness with a madman, relentlessly trying to hunt him down and kill him. Uh, Just like there are a lot of folks that hate you and would like to bring your ministry down. Amen? That's a reality in the day in which we live. David literally, we're not embellishing on any of this. He literally at this point has no security, no food. He has not a single, not a single tangible source of present help or future hope. David initially, when you study this, he becomes so depressed... He becomes so desperate, he makes one of the foolishest, most foolish decisions he ever made in his life. 
he decides to actually seek refuge with the Philistines, the king of the Philistines, their enemies. So he walks right into the Philistine capital of Gath, the hometown of Goliath. So picture the scene. Here's David, who killed Goliath, the Philistine champion. David, who was responsible for the deaths of thousands of Philistine soldiers. Oh, and I almost forgot, forgot. You know what he has strapped on his side? Goliath's sword. Now, you would think, walking right into enemy headquarters, he must have a death wish. And there may be some truth in that. He was so depressed and desperate. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, the Philistines immediately recognize th this is David. They apprehend him, take him to their king, and then suddenly, amazingly, David comes to his senses, and he realizes, this wasn't a very smart move on my part. I might have been trying to escape Saul, but I'm about to die at the hands of the Philistines. And you remember what happens? This was that occasion where David feigned madness, began to drool as if he was insane. Uh, King of Philistines look at him and says, this guy's just a mad dog, uh, not even worthy of killing, just throwing back out into the wilderness. And then at this point, David makes his way back to the Judean wilderness, and he literally crawls into a dark, damp cave called the Cave of Adullam. And this is the lowest point in David's life to date. David is hurting. He is confused. He's thinking, hey, I thought I was God's choice to be the next king. Things were going so well. What did I do wrong to get on God's bad side? But although life is making no sense for David, and although his faith is very, very shaky at this point, he continues to look to God, and we discover that in the Psalms that he wrote. David realized, like Joseph, God was not finished with the story yet. So thank God he didn't close the book on God too soon. Struggling, he kept his faith in God to give God the opportunity to finish the story. So following your notes now as we look at three truths on how God used persecution to perfect David from which we will then draw three lessons on our lives in pregnancy centers today. The first thing that God did is he removed all of David's human supports. He removed all of David's human supports. In other words, as you see there in your notes, God kicked out from under David all his crutches, anything he could lean on that could become a substitute for God. In other words, when the adversity struck, David's initial response was not to look vertically to God, but to look horizontally for human support. And get down in your notes the crutches that God kicked out under David. These were not bad things. But we're going to see God was at work in the life of his child. The first thing he kicked out from underneath David was his position. Again, and we mentioned David had become military commander. It's a very prosperous position. He was uh, living well. And uh, so he goes from uh, uh, probably being one of the uh, most wealthy men in the nation of Israel and a prosperous man uh, to a beggar in the Judean wilderness. Uh, the first person he runs to is his wife for help. And remember, uh, we don't have time to go into the story. Micah helps him, but he's forced to escape. And we know from the story that he never saw Micah again. 
Last time he ever saw Micah. And then who does he run to? Someone you would think he would run to. He ran to his spiritual mentor. He ran to Samuel for help. And again, I can't go into all the details and the circumstances, but he gets the Samuel, but Saul is after him, and he's forced to leave, and he never sees Samuel again. Samuel dies before he's ever able to see him again. And then who does he run to? His closest friend, Jonathan. And you remember that very tender account of their meeting. But again, David is forced to flee. And as you know, David never saw Jonathan again. Jonathan was killed in battle. And then the last thing David lost was self-respect at the hands of the Philistines when he has to feign madness and insanity. And he crawls into that cave, a broken, depressed man at the lowest point of his life. So God kicked out from underneath David his position, his wife, his spiritual leader, his closest friend, his self-respect. In other words, here's the point. Every single person David knew either became his enemy or was helpless to help him. David became totally isolated with no rescue in sight. David actually says in the account of the story in 1 Samuel, quote, there is hardly a step between me and death. From David's perspective, he is nothing more than a dead man walking. So the question is, why did David kick, or why did God kick the crutches out from under David? It seems so cruel. Again, you almost, is he, he almost like child abuse here. He did it to teach David to lean on God. Because only by leaning on God would David develop a close and intimate relationship with God. David is forced to stop looking horizontally for a human crutch and to look vertically to God alone. And God's doing that in your life. And in my life as well. This verse is not in your notes, but it's a great one. Listen to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 10. God says, do not fear. Why? Because I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. In other words, what's God saying? Stop looking horizontally for human support. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, God is saying, I will hold you up, but if you're leaning on someone else, you can't lean on me. So God kicked the crutches out from underneath David one by one, and it was scary. And it created great anxiety on the part of David. And we see that clearly in the Psalms that he wrote. He acknowledges tremendous struggle with anxiety and fear. But again, I go back to the fact David was being shaped by God to be king. A king who would learn how to lean on the everlasting arms of God so he could teach a nation to lean on God. Look at the second thing that God did. After he removed all of David's human supports, the second thing... God did was he broke David of self-reliance to create God-reliance. And how? By taking David into the dark cave of despair. God broke David of self-reliance to create God-reliance. How? Taking David into the dark cave of despair. There are some lessons that you cannot learn any other place than in that dark cave of despair. Joseph had his prison. Uh, Joel Goddard had his chicken coop. <laughs> Folks that are listening to this on tape, they'll have no idea what I'm talking about right there. And David had the cave of Adullam in the Judean wilderness. 
So look at the description there in your notes of the dark cave of despair. Notice, I've taken all of the verses from Job, a man who also knew very well uh, that dark cave of despair. First, and, and again, we share this because what? God's going to, what God did with David, he's going to do with you and me. We will have these same experiences for the same purpose in which he allowed David to have these experiences, to draw us to him, to know intimacy. First, there will be dark days of disappointment. Dark days of disappointment. And what, what is simply disappointment? Disappointment is when I believe that God has failed me. When I believe, when God has not acted the way I would have expected him to act. And I'm very confused about that. That that was Melanie's story. She thought God had failed her. He didn't seem to act right. And she was upset. Uh, Look at Job 30, how well he expresses this in verses 26 through 28. He says, so I, I looked for good, but evil came instead. I waited for the light, but darkness fell. My heart is troubled and restless. Days of suffering torment me. I walk in gloom without sunlight. But not only dark days of disappointment, dark days of distress. Dark days of distress. Look there at Job 19 verse 8 and 23 verse 17. Job says, God has blocked my way so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. Darkness is all around me. Thick, impenetrable darkness is everywhere. Ron Dunn was a great, great Bible teacher in years past. I had the opportunity to uh, uh, meet Ron, and a tremendous man of God, tremendous teacher. Ron's teenage son committed suicide. And Ron described his dark days of distress in that cave of despair this way. Quote, the dark night of the soul. When no light is thrown on the why of your suffering. When the usual means of grace, prayer, worship, singing, God's word, have no effect on the drooping spirit. When you are numb to spiritual things, when the tried, true formulas from books and seminars sound hollow and empty, when you discover there are some things you cannot praise or pray your way out of, you you can rebuke the devil, plead the blood, station angels, but nothing moves the darkness. There's a man just being honest, transparent, about the dark cave of despair. Now, praise God. He didn't leave David there. He didn't leave Ron there. He's not going to leave you there. But that's going to be part of the experience. Like Job said, darkness is all around me. Thick and impenetrable darkness is everywhere. So, days of disappointment, dark days of distress, but also dark days of doubt. The next point, dark days of doubt. Job 12, 25, they grope in the darkness without a light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. You need to understand, when you're hurting, when you're in pain, and you're struggling with disappointment and distress, not only is God at work, but the devil is at work. And the devil's attempting to sow into your heart, into your mind, seeds of doubt about God's providential care and love for you. For you. And we need to learn to recognize the lies of the devil where we turn to put our trust in God. So dark days of disappointment, distress, doubt, and then lastly, dark days of depression. Job in chapter 10, verse 22, said about his cave of despair, it is a land as dark as midnight, a land of gloom and confusion, where even the light is dark as midnight. Cynthia Swindoll wrote this to describe her own personal experience with depression. She said, depression, black as a thousand midnights in a cypress swamp, loneliness that is indescribable, 
confusion regarding God, frustration with life and circumstances, the feeling that you have been abandoned, that you are worthless, unlovable, the pain is excruciating. Because God loved David, he drove him to that cave of despair. God allowed him to experience disappointment, distress, doubt, depression. But look at the next question in your notes. And this is the million-dollar question. How long did did God keep David in the dark cave of despair? How long? Two answers to that question. Number one, get it down in your notes. Until David got so low, there was no place to look but up. That was God at work. He was getting David so low, so he had no place to look but up. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 142. This is one of those psalms he wrote while in the cave, giving us what God taught him. He said, there is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. In other words, he finally realized there's no human support out there that's going to help me through this. I cried out to Thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. David finally stops looking horizontally for another human crutch. He's now looking vertically alone to God. And the dark cave of despair. David learned, just like God wants to teach us, how we are to be totally dependent upon him. That apart from him, we can do nothing. And as God drives us to see our utter and absolute dependence upon him, he desires for that to create in us a desperation for God, a desperation that will drive us to God, knowing that he is our only hope. He is our only deliverer as we put our faith in Him. And when we are leaning on God and leaning on Him alone, we learn the truth contained in the great old hymn, and this is one of my favorite hymns, Like a River Glorious. There's a line in that hymn that reads, They who trust Him wholly. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y. They who trust Him wholly Find Him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding, as He promised, perfect peace and rest. The cave of despair. Don't miss this now, because this is what God wants to do in your life, my life. The cave of despair became a sanctuary where David was abandoned with God, alone with God, never to be the same again. And this man was never the same again. So how long did God keep David in the dark cave of despair until he got so low there was no place to look up? But now look at the next statement in your notes, so important. I think one of the key truths in this conference, until exalting Christ became more important to David than escaping the cave. He wasn't ready to be delivered from the cave until exalting Christ became more important to him than escaping the cave. And David comes to that place. Look at what he wrote in Psalm 57, verses 7 11. This is in the cave. He finally comes to the place. He says, God, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. See, once David stopped looking for human support and fixed his eyes on God alone, he became lost in the wonder and the majesty and the glory of Almighty God. As a result, no longer was the issue to escape the cave But now, how can I use this adversity to exalt my God? How can I use 
my adversity? How can I use this time in the cave to express my heart's delight in him? That yes, even here, he satisfies my soul. That he is worthy of my attention. He's worthy of my affections. He's worthy of my allegiance. He's worthy of my worship. So David transformed the cave of despair into a cathedral of praise to God. Can you imagine, can you imagine the songs of praise that came out of the mouth of that cave? Wouldn't you have liked to have been there to hear that? (laughs) Bottom line, a Christian is not ready to leave the cave of despair until he can be content Remaining in the cave, delighting in and praising God. So we're looking at David and how God uses persecution to perfect his child. So first God removed all of David's human supports. Then God broke David of self-reliance to create God-reliance by taking him into the cave of despair. Look at that third point. God brought people into his life. Oh, I'm sorry. God breaks David. God breaks David. For the spiritual benefit of others. And again, such an important principle to see in this conference. God was at work to equip David to teach others. So God brought people into his life. Look at that next point. So he could teach them what God taught him. Look at 1 Samuel 22.2. This is precious. After God does his work on David, and then this is what we read. And everyone... And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. What a crowd! And he became captain over them all. Now there are about 400 men with him. So David is brought into this cave of despair by God. God gets him so low he has no place to look up. Where exalting Christ becomes more important than escaping the cave. He's learned to be content in God regardless of his circumstances. And so he says, David, you're ready now. You're ready to be used in the lives of others. So he brings a bunch of malcontents to him. 400 men. And this cave then becomes David's boot camp where God taught him how to lead others in order to prepare David for his God-given destiny to be king of all Israel. And what did David teach those 400 men? We have the answer to that question. All you got to do is read Psalm 44, and you have it. But look just at a sampling, verses 8 and 11. He wrote this psalm in the cave, and he's indicating what he's saying, what he's teaching. So I mentioned, here's David. God's done this remarkable work in his life. Not overnight now. We don't know exactly, you know, how the old time, but again, we're talking about 10 long years. And he turns to these men and he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, guys, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. Remember, they're in debt, discontented. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. By the way, maybe already be a step ahead of me. David's teaching was very effective because you know who those 400 men became? Get it down in your notes. The 400 men became David's mighty men of valor. It's mentioned in the Scripture. That after he become king, they hang with David through thick and thin. So let's move to lessons learned from David. What can we learn in the last few minutes that we have? Number one, getting crutches kicked out from under you is frightening. It is. But let it cause you to lean on God, not look for another crutch. Realize what God is doing. 
Psalm 56.3, again, one of the psalms he wrote in the cave. David says, I love this, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. And then verses 9 through 11, this I know, that God is for me. He learned that in that cave of despair, that God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And that's why he had the faith. Remember, he had several occasions where he could have taken Saul's life. And he didn't take that opportunity because he knew God was his refuge. He didn't need to take matters into his own hands. He could trust the Lord. This I know that God is for me. In God, I love this, whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Don't you love the progression? He says, I'm afraid. So I'm going to put my trust in God. And he says, I've put my trust in God. Therefore, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. What can man do to me? So we understand because God loves you. Because God wants to teach you to lean on Him and Him alone so that you can develop a close and intimate relationship with Him. He will at times be ruthless, kicking the crutches out from underneath you. But don't look for another crutch. Learn to lean on God. Look at the second truth. Don't confuse the darkness and depression of the cave for God deserting you. But God isolating you. You might want to use the terminology God cornering you (laughs) with Himself in order to teach you He alone is enough. You and God are a majority. But here's a reality. You'll never learn that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You'll never learn that Jesus is all you need, that He is enough until Jesus is all that you have. So, again... You see this sort of theme running through, beginning with Joseph, that that maze gets dark, the cave gets dark. We get confused, we get perplexed, but don't confuse the darkness, don't confuse the the depression that God has deserted you. No, He's just cornering you. He's just isolating you alone with Him so that He can teach you, I'm enough. I am Jehovah, what? Jireh. And Jehovah is what? I am that I am. Whatever you need, God says, I am. You don't have to look horizontally. Look to me. You might want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. What? This is a fabulous reinforcement of this in the New Testament out of the life of the Apostle Paul. It just captures in two verses the truth of everything that we've shared. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came, came to us in Asia. We don't know exactly what he's talking about. Maybe it's when he was uh, stoned. We know he, of course, suffered tremendous persecution over the course of his ministry. But it, it apparently was some horrific Adversity, horrific persecution that he experienced. And this is what he, how he described it. He said, and now, now don't, don't lose sight of this. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. This man we put on a pedestal, this champion of the faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, this mighty man of God. And this is what this mighty man of God wrote. He says, we were burdened excessively. Beyond our strength, so that we even despaired even of our life. Paul said, I hit such a deep time of trouble, adversity, and persecution. 
I was burdened beyond my ability to cope with it. It crushed me. I despaired. Even of my life. I, didn't have, I just didn't have the strength to cope. It was beyond. I, 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 and he even says, beginning of verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. He said, this was so bad, I gave up hope. I thought this was it. This is the closing curtain on my life. He... But then the next phrase, he gives the purpose in it all. God's purpose in it all. That there was purpose. There is someone directing you through the maze. Directing you through the cave. He said, God did all that. Notice the two words. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. It says, in order that. There's purpose. There's cause. Why this was necessary for Paul to go through. In order that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You know what Paul's saying? Paul said, God, because of his infinite love for me, let this adversity penetrate that heads of my life to where I thought he was going to crush every breath of life out of me, that I was a goner. But God did that with a purpose to teach me to trust in him alone, to trust that I have a God who can raise the dead to life. That there's nothing too difficult for God. In other words, Paul acknowledges God was building my faith in his, that I came out the other side with a faith that I never knew prior to going into this. It happened with Joseph, happened with David, and Paul saying the same thing. And then look at the third lesson we learn. When God breaks you, when God breaks you, it is not to end you, but to use you in the lives of others. When God breaks you, it's not to end you, but to use you in the lives of others. Beloved, understand, you know, we use this so flippantly, but it really is not about you. It really is about God and others. I mean, you need to understand what God is doing in your life. Don't miss this. He's always doing it in view of others that are in need. And preparing you and equipping you for ministry. Uh, Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 again. Let's just look at, as we close, just a couple of passages, and we're, we'll make our way to lunch. And yes, I know I'm a little over, but not too bad. Uh, I'll be down in about four minutes. Look at, uh, look at verses 3 through 7. Blessed, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. We'll stop right there. There it is, right there. You're saying, wait a minute, Andy. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that God will allow me, His child, to become hurt, wounded, abused? For the sake of others? Why would we ask that question? Look at that right there. If our Lord and Master went to the cross to provide a foundation of salvation and life to the world, why should we be surprised that we, His followers, are not called to follow in His footsteps? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll stop here. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I wish we had a little more time to linger, but we don't. But let me begin uh, 
Let me begin reading at verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's talking about, of course, conversion. When His light penetrates our darkness, we're brought to faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 7, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure of Jesus, this glory of Jesus in earthen vessels, frail clay pots is the translation. Why? That the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And then he says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body, the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but what? Life in you. You hear what he's saying? This way he's saying as we close. He's saying, here you are as a, a believer. And you're surrounded by people. You have family that's watching. You have unsaved neighbors, coworkers. You, have, you know, whether you realize it or not, people got their eyes on you. So you're a child of God, and you have the treasure, the glory of Jesus in you. And Jesus wants to get that light out of you to minister to others. So what does he do? He starts letting the stones be thrown at you. Because he needs to crack you. To release the light. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, we are afflicted. That word afflicted is stressed to the point of agonizing pressure and pain. You know, when I do training for volunteers, one of the things I've always noticed as they come to the training, they're very excited. They have no clue about ministry. Uh, most of them that come to the training have never ministered outside the four walls of their local church. And I don't mean that in a ba- bad way, just, just stating a reality. So they come with very romantic notions. Almost like, you know, sword of faith in one hand, shield of faith in one hand, sword of spirit in one hand. And I'm going to pounce in that ministry. And I'm going to see every. A woman just turned from abortion to choose life and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and I, I know I need to do a little reality check with them. And I, and I said, hey, the Apostle Paul tells us what true ministry is like experientially, and it's right here. And he mentions four things, affliction, stress to the point of agonizing pain. He talks about perplexity. That word in the Greek literally means just without a way. Paul says, I hit situations, I don't have a clue what I should do. I mean, I don't have a single clue whether I should just bullheaded go forward, if I should retreat, duck, I have no clue. And also in that word is thought, not only does he not have a clue, but there's a sense of embarrassment. Shouldn't I know better? Shouldn't I be a little wiser? Shouldn't I have a little more sense of inadequacy? I mean, adequacy? No. Was God trying to teach you in your inadequacy to trust what? His adequacy. And then persecuted. He says, I'm continually intimidated by others, chased by others, relentlessly trying to be beaten down by others. And then the worst one at the very end, when he talks about being destroyed or knocked down, the idea there is in like in a wrestling contest. He says, I'm constantly in the contest being knocked down on my fanny. That's exactly what he's saying. But, of course, he says, what, afflicted but not what? Crushed. Perplexed, perplexed but not to the point of despair. Persecuted but what? Not forsaken. Yes, I may be knocked down, but I'm never knocked out of the contest because God's right there to pick me up. But the point I want you to see in that passage, he brought everything back to what? This death is working in us that the life of Jesus might be manifested through us to others. That's where he says, death works in us, but life has worked in you. Through our adversity, through our difficulties, you have seen the beauty. You have seen the sufficiency. You've seen the reality that Jesus is enough. That he satisfies, even in 
life's darkest hours. Doesn't mean we're, we're freed from the pain, the perplexity, but running deeper than the pain, deeper than the sorrow, deeper than the hurt is that inexpressible joy of God, His presence, His love. Father, um, David teaches as much. And we realize what you did in David's life, you're going to do in our lives. Of course, it's not going to be the cave of Adullam, but you're very creative. And you're going to create a cave of despair for each one of us. Where we do know disappointment, distress, doubt, and depression. Lord, I hope we've seen today that there's cause in all of that. And the cause is not that you hate us. It's not that you're trying to hurt us or minimize us or our ministries. But as we've seen, you're trying to get us to that place where we get so low we have no place to look up. We're exalting you becomes more important than escaping the cave. And we're through it all. We learn the sweetness of leaning on you. And as we lean on you to develop an intimacy with you that we've never, never known before. We used all those verses about Job. And I think that last chapter in Job. When we get to the end of the story. Lord, Job said this. You know, before the affliction, before the suffering, I knew a lot about you. I knew a lot about you by the hearing of the ear. But now, my eyes have seen you. And Lord, we surrender our lives to you to complete this same process in us. Lord, in your tender mercies, remember us in our human frailty, Remember our weakness, our struggle. But we're going to trust you to complete the process. As we've seen this day, give us the trust not to close the book up on you too quick. That we'll maintain faith, although it may be shaky, although we may struggle, rail against you at times that we would keep coming to you and that you would be able to finish the story and we would be able to say, God is compassionate. God is good. God is great. And if God be for us, who can be against us? For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.